Uh, today we are again still in the book of Ecclesiastes in this uh, journey of Solomon of trying to make sense and purpose and meaning in life. And uh, we're in chapter 7 and Deo this morning is going to be reading for us this passage that we're going to be looking at. Morning Parker's Church, reading from Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1 to 25. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing, and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous. Neither be over wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever exists far off and most profound, who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. Thank you, Dale, for, for that reading. Uh, our reading, if you didn't get it, is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we're looking at the first 25 verses. And we're in this series of Ecclesiastes, the search for meaning. So let, us, let me just give us some context again this morning. 
Um, Solomon is at, at this point reflecting on his life, uh, what he calls this life under the sun, uh, which means is this the reality of life as we experience this, this, this experience of life as we see it from our human uh, perspective. And he has been looking back over his life and he's been on this journey of doing multiple different things, of trying to make sense of this world, trying to understand it. Uh, what does life under the sun look like? What is its purpose? What does it mean? What is its place? And where we are today in Solomon's journey is he's in a part of his book now where he's starting to dispense some of the lessons that he's learned and share some of the wisdoms that he's gained and accumulated in this journey. And as we read that passage, it's quite a long passage. And for me, it was just overwhelming. But as you've looked at it, at, at one at first glance and one reading, it's it's very confusing. It's just this collection of of proverbs and wisdom sayings that might even look and sound a little bit random and and disconnected, and they can stand on their own. And what I want to try and do for us today is look and understand that that there is some sense that in this there is a deeper wisdom, there is a deeper meaning, some life bigger life principles that Solomon is pointing us to, an alternative way of living under the sun. That in this collection, there is this generic holding of a life principle and some life principles of how we can make sense of the world and live in an alternative way. And we could look at each one individually, but we're not going to do that. We want to try and press in deeper. And discover some of these learnings that Solomon has come to. And before we go there, I think we need to take a step back and just consider that or this reality, this life under the sun. What has Solomon discovered about this life under the sun? And if you remember in our first week, in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1, he makes his summary statement. He says this, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What do we gain from all our efforts in this life and all our labors? And we looked at that word vanity. And it's, it's a multifaceted, very deep word. And we looked at this element of that life is a vapor. Vanity means vapor. It's, it's fleeting. It, life comes and then it goes. It disappears. It's like a, a breath on a cold Winter's morning. And when we view life under the sun from this perspective, from our mortal human understanding, and when we look at the realities of the world around us, you arrive at this conclusion that Solomon has vanity. Life is brief. Like, where is the purpose and meaning in it? If, if I come and I just go, all the things that I've achieved disappear. People don't even remember. It's all gone. And this is the reality that Solomon is grappling with, this life under the sun as we know it and see it and experience it. But what I want us today is to look at another dimension of this word vanity, of what Solomon in his reflections is really trying to grapple with. It's this understanding of vanity in this sense. It's this unknowability of life that we are limited with. That we are limited with, with some sense of unknowability. That we, are, we have an inability to fully understand. We have an inability to fully comprehend and make sense of the world as we know it and see it. We have this inability to actually control and manage all the things of our lives. 
uh, one of the commentators explains the, uh, this word vanity. He says, something that is hebel, that is the word vanity, the Hebrew word, cannot be grasped or controlled. It may refer to something that one experiences or encounters for only a moment. There's the, the vapor, there's the fleetingness of our lives, but it cannot be grasped, neither physically nor intellectually. We, we cannot understand it. We cannot get to grips with it fully and completely. We cannot control it. And, and what Solomon is saying for us is that when he's been faced with the realities of his life, when he's looked at the things that he's experienced and he sees what's happening around him, he, he doesn't fully make sense of it. He cannot fully comprehend it or explain it. Why do things happen the way they happen? Why has this happened and not that happened? There is this unknowability of the world he's coming to understand. And often in the sense of why this word is translated as frustration, it says there's a frustration, there's this vanity, um, it's, it's because things seem unjust. They seem wrong. They seem unfair. It seems to be without purpose or without reason. And he gives us an example of how he's come to this conclusion and in part of his struggle over this life under the sun in verse 15. He says, in this meaningless life of mine, the word meaningless there is the same as vapor. He says, in this life of mine that I'm struggling to comprehend the realities that I'm seeing, I've seen both of these, he says. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. And in this sense here, he's speaking of righteousness, not in a moral ethical sense, but in a, of, of a rightness and a just cause sense that something is right. And what he's saying is like in a, in a legal case, he says, I've seen people who are right. I've seen people who are just and have the right cause, but they've lost their case. And the wicked person who is wrong has won. Life. You see what he's saying? Life doesn't make sense. It's a vapor. That the wicked are flourishing and the just are perishing. And it's beyond my control. And it's beyond my understanding and I don't know why. Life is a vanity. I'm trying to comprehend all these things. Now if, if we take a, a moment to pause right now and take a step back and reflect upon life under the sun. If we look at the world this morning, at the world this week, and at the world this year, there's a sense that you can begin to feel and identify with what Solomon is saying. is Trying to make sense of all of this. This vanity, he says, in the world around us. If we look at the, this week in America, this, the senseless killing of George Floyd, the unjustness of it, it's like... Why would someone do that? Why would God allow that? It doesn't make sense. And we just see the depravity and the wickedness of it. And you're left with trying to comprehend and understand that people would do this. And these systems and these things exist and they happen in the world. And, and the resultant outpouring of emotion and response and the destruction and the anger that has been coming out is again, what is that? It's people trying to make sense of what they've seen and expressing themselves. There's this grappling with and this grasping of like of this reality that they're experiencing and they feel so deeply. And we're seeing it spill out onto the streets. We're seeing it influencing and affecting the worlds that we live in. This is what Solomon 
is speaking of is, is like we're trying to make sense of this world. And it seems so unjust. Um, if you look at the world today, like the, this whole year, this, this lockdown and COVID-19, you have to have some point sat down and gone, what the heck is going on here? The, the, the death of people, the, the breadth of the destruction across the world of people's lives and losing people and the economic effects and, and the tragedy of the, the most marginalized of being the worst affected. And you, you're left wondering, like, why? What's the point of life? It doesn't seem right. There's this sense of unknowability and frustration that, that, that Solomon is trying to articulate in his experience of life and that... Uh, a sense for many of us as we reflect and look at this week and we look at this year, can identify with and go, yes, why? Let's think, where is God? And what Solomon has discovered about the realities of life in his experiences and his frustrations and what we are beginning to feel this year and this week and see around us is the starting point of the development of an understanding of a biblical worldview that will hopefully begin to guide us in how we can respond and how we can live wisely. You see, what we're seeing and experiencing is what the Bible tells us. Genesis chapter 3. What do we have? Adam and Eve outside the Garden of Eden, out of the presence of God, banished to a life of under the sun, the physical realm and experience of, of, of looking around them. And all hope, in a sense, is now lost for them. They, they, they left in this world that does not make sense. There's this futility and frustration and hardship of life. And this vanity that awaits them, that there's this injustice and this brokenness and this struggle and this hopelessness. Their, their, their lives are now this striving but not yet grasping. Their lives are this vapor of frustration, banished to a life under the sun, apart from God, just looking at the world around them and trying to make sense of it. Uh, Romans 8 picks up on this theme of this reality that we know of life under the sun. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration. And interestingly, the word frustration, the Greek word, is the same as the Hebrew word for vanity. It's the same word. This frustration, that creation, that all of the world, that we cannot make sense. It's frustrating. He says, we know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. It's, it, there's this groaning and there's this hurting and there's this striving and there's this grasping to try and get hold of and make sense of it. And the, the reality is, this is what we live with. This is what Solomon is articulating for us. And this is what the Bible tells us. There's this, this developing of a worldview of understanding. So then, what should we do? What then is our response? How then should we live? Should we just then be left with some sense of despair and hopelessness? Uh, life, life under the sun, vanity, it's just vanity. And we could, all hope is lost and we can fall off a cliff here. We can descend into a life of what I would call a life of escapism. That we try and avoid the senseless realities that we're confronted with as, as they are hurtful and painful. And we can't make sense of them. We can't control them. And we, we enter into a life of escapism that manifests itself in hedonistic pursuits of pleasure. And we could, many of us could identify with this. I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us have our escapisms from the realities of this world that are 
hedonistic and pleasure-seeking in its root. Or we could fall off another cliff This that we've seen this week. It's that we live lives of anger. We live lives of oppression. As we see it work itself out of us, as we try to make sense of our experiences, it can, it can manifest in oppressive and unjust behaviors that are hurtful to other people. Or it manifests itself in violence and anger or abuse. We can, and we've seen it this week in the world around us, how people fall off a cliff and how we respond and how we see this destructiveness of our inability to make sense of what's happening. It's these lives that struggle to express themselves in the frustration of reality that is suffocating and has become senseless and destructive. And we can feel this. We see it in Solomon. The Bible is describing it to us. And but is this our response? And Solomon is showing us today, no, no. He's saying is there is a better way to live. There is more to life than just living under the sun. <laughs> and Romans 8, where we looked, it continues. And if you look at verses 21 through 24, he says, We eagerly await in hope. There is a hope that creation itself will then be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. There is a hope that God is at work, that this reality of under the sun isn't all that there is, and there is a God, and He's at work, and He's liberating now and fully into the future that we would be brought out of this into His presence as His sons and daughters. We wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. There is a hope. There is a way of living. That there is more to life than just under the sun. There is a life to be lived above the sun. And we should take this to heart. And Solomon wants this to begin to shape us and to inform us and to lead us to navigate and make sense of this world. And that leads us into his first principle that I think he's wanting to teach us. It's, it's a rather cheesy way of saying it, but I call it the better than principle. He's saying is there is a better way to live. And there is a way that's better than principle is to choose wisdom rather than escapism. To put some handles on it so we can understand it. He's saying is we should choose wisdom. Godly wisdom. Biblical wisdom. The revelation of God. There's a way of living at a base principle of wisdom is better than escapism. And we should pursue wisdom. And in fact, we should be pursuing godly wisdom. And part of that wisdom of choice is to understand that this isn't all that there is. So this better than principle, choosing wisdom over escapism. So what does he do? In, in the first six verses of chapter 7, he contrasts two types of people. He contrasts two types of ways of living. And constantly he says, one is better than the other. It's better than. It's better than. And, and the first person or the first way of living is the way of wisdom. The wise man, he says, the, the, the way of wisdom is that you consider the realities of life under the sun. You look at them. And he gives us the example of death. And you look at death and its implications. And you allow that reality to begin to shape you in the right way in how you think and live and act. The wise man, the wise way, looks at death and allows it to shape him. He says, but... 
There is the way of the escapist, escapism, the way of the foolish. What do they do? They don't look to confront that reality. He says you can choose to avoid that reality. And in, in this example, Solomon is, says it's a hedonistic pursuit. And he uses examples of pleasure, of parting, that we, we, we avoid the realities and we escape in pursuits of pleasure to find and make sense a purpose and a meaning of this reality. Look what he says, verses 1 through 2 and 4. The day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning. That is, it's better to go to a funeral than to go to the house of feasting, meaning than to go to a party. He says, for death is the destiny of every man. That's the reality. There's death and there's destruction. And the living should take this to heart. And we should take it to heart. The wise person would consider this. The wise person doesn't avoid this. So there's this principle like to choose to consider, to choose the wise choice and not choose escapism to avoid. He says, the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning. You're at the funeral home. And the heart of the fool is in the house of pleasure. This principle, what he's trying to say to us here is, he's not morbid and loving death. Of course, we love life more than death. But what he's trying to say is, let death be your teacher. Let it bring your life into focus. See, what happens when you're about to die? All the things that don't really matter, those things that you've spent a lot of time and energy on, suddenly become pointless. And it's the relationships, it's the people, it's the love given and the love received that suddenly you treasure. So what's happening? There is a, a focusing that death brings and a shaping that it brings over your life. And what he's saying is, don't be a fool. Don't try and avoid it. Death is a reality. You can't avoid it. He says, this life under the sun, the world that we live, you can't escape it. He says, you can't drown it with endless parties and pleasures. And you can't laugh it off and avoid it and pretend it doesn't exist. That's what he's saying here. He says, these amusements, they, in verse 6, he says, they disappear like little kindling sticks in the fire under the poiky pot. They just burn up and go away. But he says, the wise man. The wise man goes to the funeral and he looks death in the face and he allows that reality to begin to shape him. How do I live now in the light of my coming death? How I live now determines my eternal future, that this isn't all that there is. Who do I love? How do I love? What do I value? What am I investing in? In verse 5, he says, rather now receive the rebuke of the wise man than listen to these songs of these fools in the houses of pleasure. Your life depends on it, he's trying to stress for us. That there is more to life than this. And Solomon has previously concluded in chapter 3 that we have eternity set in our hearts. That death is not the end. That death is just the beginning. Death is the doorway. And it's this splitting of the pathway of life. That one goes to be in the very presence of God again for all eternity. And one is to be separated from God into this frustration, into this vanity of senseless living without God for all eternity. So how we live now really does matter. And he says, allow, the wise choice is to allow these realities, such as death, to shape us with wise living now. 
in all that we do. This better than principle he's trying to illustrate. That there is a better way to live. There's a way to choose wisdom over escapism. There's a way to look at the realities of this life and to choose wisdom in them and rather than try to avoid them in pursuits of your own pleasures. And he, he illustrates this further. He gives us some real examples to, to show us this better than. That, that in life you always have to make a choice. So he uses the example in verse 7 of money and extortion and bribery. He says, what will extortion and bribery get you? Are you going to line your coffin with your money? He says, no, there's a better way. You see, he says, go to the funeral. Allow death to preach to you, to show you the futility of giving up your integrity with bribery and extortion because you can't take the money with you. There is a better way. And allow this death to speak to you. He, he looks in verse 9 at anger. He says, as Solomon has concluded, that you will be frustrated with life and it could manifest itself in anger. He says, go to the funeral. Do you want to be remembered as the one who is always angry and nasty and bitter? He says, allow the funeral to speak to you and remind you, no, there's a better way of, of, of gentleness and kindness and peace. He, in verse 10, he speaks of nostalgia. He says, why, why live in the past thinking that it's always better? He says, that's an illusion. He says, you're denying the reality of God's present in the present. Like, is he not in control now? He was in control then, but he's lost total control. He's like, no, there's a better way to live right now in the present. And allow these realities to shape you. He says, choose wisdom over escapism. And all of these examples actually are variants of escapism. Extortion or bribery is just simply escaping your responsibility to do the right thing. Anger is escaping your inability to cope with things that are not being done in the way that you want them to be done. Nostalgia is escapism by taking a, a vacation in the past instead of grappling with your present current realities. And what he's saying is, in, in all of these things, in all of life, as we look around us and as we feel them and experience them, there's a choice and there's a better way. And there is a way of wisdom versus a way of escapism. And he says, it's having this wisdom of your current realities under the sun. He says, a wisdom of your coming death and its implications for all of eternity. A wisdom that understands the present and is looking forward to the future reality, your future home that you were made for, a life that is lived above the sun, a place that we cannot see fully yet, we only see in part, but a place that we long for, a place that we yearn for, and that coming reality should begin to shape us now in how we live. And we should pause, and we should choose, he says, choose wisdom over escapism. You can't avoid it. And a wise way of living is to choose God's wisdom, God's revelation in His Son and in His Word and the power of the Spirit. He says, I've given you my wisdom of how to live, how to live in, with gentleness and kindness over anger, how to live with integrity over bribery and corruption, how to allow your eternal destiny to shape what you value now and how you live. And he says, choosing one over the other, choosing wisdom over escapism is a good thing. And that's what Solomon concludes. Verse 11 and 12, he says, wisdom is like an inheritance. It is a good thing and it benefits those under the sun. 
wisdom, the choice of wisdom is a good thing and it's going to benefit you. And then he says, wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. You want to preserve your life? You want to see your life make sense? You want to see it last? You want to see it have benefit and value and worth? He says, choose wisdom. Choose godly wisdom. Don't sit back and throw your hands off and fall off the cliff and be overwhelmed and descend into a life of hedonistic pleasures of escapism. He says the preservation of life comes in looking at these realities with the wisdom of God and allowing them to shape you with this understanding of how the world works. Life under the sun is not all there is, he's saying. There is a life above the sun, and that reality should begin to shape us now. We should choose a way, a path of living in that way, rather than trying to avoid that reality. The second principle that he alludes us to is almost like a, he does an about turn. It seems like he contradicts himself, and it's what I call we are limited principle. Again, a little bit cheesy, but it's we are limited principle. He says, well, while we should choose wisdom and everything in life, there's a better way to do something. And we always need to be making choices. But he says one of the things that he's discovered in his life journey is that we are limited in our human wisdom and understanding. Verse 23 and 24, he says, all this I have tested by wisdom. And I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it's far off. And most profound who can discover it. And that's what he's getting to, this core frustration of his life in his opening statement in the book. Vanity. It's, it's, it's vanity. This inability to comprehend and make sense of everything. This wisdom in Solomon's life couldn't protect him from the failures that he made. His human understanding couldn't change the way things were and the disappointments that he's experienced. And he's come to this conclusion that in all my best efforts, I'm, I'm limited. I'm limited in my knowledge and understanding. And that's what he tells us in verse 13 and 14. Consider what God has done. You see, there's that first principle. Consider. Think. Now choose. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, what? Consider. God has made the one as well as the other. He's made the good and the bad. Therefore, a man cannot discover, understand, comprehend anything about his future. He's showing us two things that he's learned about our limitations here. He says, one, we, we cannot control everything. He says, who can straighten what God has made crooked? Like, there is a sovereign God who's in control of everything, good and bad. And I cannot control everything. I cannot manipulate my life in a way, if I think I'm in control of my life, Something will happen. All the plans you had for 2020 have gone out the window. You didn't foresee what was coming. You don't, you're not controlling your life at the moment. And that's some of the frustration that, that much and most people are experiencing in this lockdown. They, they, their lives, their control of their lives have been taken away from them by the government. And what he's trying to show us is this principle is that we're not in control. But there is a God who's in control. The other thing he wants to show us is that we, we, we don't understand everything. He said, like, a man cannot discover the why of everything. We, we will not fully comprehend the why. Why things happen the way they happen. Why God has allowed such destruction and, and, and horrific things to, maybe in our own lives, to work out and understand this. is This whole year has a question mark hanging over it. Like, why would this happen? 
And he says, man cannot discover or understand these things. That the wicked prosper and the righteous perish. And this life under the sun is plagued with hardship. It isn't always a bed of roses. And he's showing us here that we're not in control of everything. We can't have everything right all the time in our own efforts. That we don't fully understand everything. He says, in our human understanding, we are limited. And what he's trying to tell us is actually one of the wisest things we can do is realize that not even being wise, although better than foolish escapism, will not tell you all you need to know. One of the wisest things you can do is come to the realization of your limitation. It will not be able to get you to where you want to get. And if we don't come to terms with this reality, if we're not willing to accept our limitation, it's going to lead you down a path of vanity and vapor in search of meaning and purpose and understanding and control that is destructive and it's an illusion and it leads you away from God. He says, if you want to live in this world, he says, there's an understanding that your wisdom can only get you so far. He says this in verse 29. This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. What he's saying is, is that in this gap that exists, this gap of control and understanding between God and his knowledge and his power and us and our ignorance and impotence, men have gone in search of their own schemes. We've gone in search of our own explanations. We've gone in search of our own ways of living to make sense of what this reality is. And it's led us down paths of foolishness, of escapism that has led to destructive alienation from God. And he says, is we need to come to the realization that this gap cannot be filled by us. And the sooner we come to the realization of our human limitations in our own wisdoms and understanding, then we truly begin to live. You see, wisdom can never our own human wisdom and understandings can never achieve the kind of control that we want over our lives and the outcomes that we desire. Wisdom itself cannot save us. While, while we can know many things, and they are very clever people, we can know many things truly and deeply, but we can't know all things completely. And this world is twisted. There's something about it that every heart is affected that we only see in part. And again, Solomon points us to that in verse 20. He says, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. He says, we're broken by sin. We're fractured. Like we, we, we cannot do all this right. We cannot make sense of it all. We cannot make the right choices. And we don't know the right paths. Because we are sinful. There's not a righteous man. This world has been fractured. And it's in birth pains, groaning for liberation. And a word of wisdom, he says, is, while there, we may need to make the right choices, we need to choose God's wisdom over escapism. And he says, when you realize that you are limited in your own understanding, it prevents you from going down the path of escapism and to choosing the path of godly wisdom as he's revealed to us through his son, and in his word. So if we are limited in our understanding and we can't comprehend and make sense of all this, is where does it leave us then? See, our only hope then is the perfect righteous one. 
Our only hope then is the one who knows everything. It's the holy and the powerful and the perfect and the just and the good God. He is then our only hope. See, the, the sovereign God of all eternity, holding everything in his hands, the beginning and the end, life and death, righteousness and justice. The gap that exists, this human limitation that Solomon is exclaiming and pointing out to us, this vanity of all vanities, should and ultimately push us, push us to God. And that's where Solomon, Solomon lands. In verse 18, the man who fears God, he says, avoids all extremes. What he's saying is once we embrace this fact of our sinfulness, of our brokenness, of our limitation, of our human understanding and our ability to control and that our own schemes and our own explanations are insufficient to make sense of this world and to lead us into paths of righteousness, to lead us into paths of life that last forever and that ultimately cannot save us, only then can we begin to embrace this better way of living. This way of wisdom over escapism. It's a wisdom that confronts the realities of life with the truth. It's a, a wisdom that knows enough to lead us to fear God. It's a wisdom that looks death in the face and allows it to be shaped by this reality. It's a wisdom that respects the reverence and awe of the holy, righteous and perfect God. It's a wisdom that chooses to place its faith and hope and life in the hands of the almighty sovereign God. It's a wisdom that chooses to obey God, even when it doesn't make sense. It's a wisdom that is content to leave the, enigma, the enigmas and the vanities of life in God's hands. It's a wisdom that knows enough to realize that it doesn't know enough. And the only option we have, Solomon says, is to fear and obey God in faith. That he is, he will and is at work making right this world. This world that seems so wrong. This world that seems so broken. He says all the apparent inconsistencies and the injustices that we've experienced and seen play itself out in the world today. Our only hope then is to fear God. To stand in awe of Him. And surrender to Him and follow Him in obedience. That He is resolving all of this. He is the one who knows it all. He is the one who is bringing it to its right and its proper conclusion. He is the one that is making all things new. A new heaven and a new earth. And He's bringing us into that. And that the pathway to that is through Him and His wisdom perfectly in His Son Jesus. And that the wise and the proper response of us as we look at life under the sun is to realize we need to fear God. Obey Him. And thus, ultimately then receive the fullness of God, life Himself. The very thing that we spent our lives trying to comprehend and grapple comes to us through faith and obedience and fear and awe and wisdom of who God is. And Solomon, that's what he's saying to us. is Life lived under the sun only doesn't make sense. We cannot comprehend it. There is a better way to live. And it's the way that chooses the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, over the avoidance and the escapism of the realities that we know. And the secret in that is to realize that we are limited and we are unable ourselves to get ourselves to the end. And that we respond in faith and trust in the righteous and good God who is at work over everything to give ourselves to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we thank you that you are a good God, that you are a holy God, that you are a righteous God, that you are the eternal, all-powerful, sovereign God, that you are in control of everything, that the world seems out of control, but this is not all there is, that you haven't left us to our own devices. That you are reconciling, that you are redeeming, that your redemption plan is has come and is at work and will be brought to fruition. And that we get to live now with this hope, this hope that you have revealed a way of living to us through your son Jesus in your word. That we can respond to you in reverence and awe and fear and obedience to you at the coming realities of what you're going to do. And that we can be liberated and set free and to live fulfilling lives of purpose and meaning that last forever in your very presence. Would your grace extend to us this morning in a world that is broken, in a world that is hurting, and many, many, many cannot see the sense or comprehend the injustices. And the Holy Spirit, would your grace abound to us this morning? Would you bring healing? Would you bring salvation? Would you bring peace? Would you bring light in the darkness? Would you bring hope in the lostness? And would you open our hearts to your wisdom, to your way? It doesn't make sense to us right now. But that you would bring your power of your spirit and of your word into every scenario, into every moment in this suffering world that we are experiencing this year. That we would rejoice we would rejoice with you that there is a hope, a hope that is found in you. Amen.